Okay, let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you um, for this day. Lord, I thank you um, again for the Wagnells and, and how you're using them in, in Eastern Africa. Uh, uh, Joe's a dear, dear friend, and Esther and the whole family, and, and Lord, you've gifted him in, in a, just a very unique way uh, of He's truly a Mr. Fix-It at, at a bunch of different levels and, and he's spiritually minded. And I thank you, Lord, for how you've used him and are using him there in East Africa. I thank you for Esther and their kids. And Lord, I just pray that um, you continue to have your hand upon them. Uh, Lord, we uh, turn our attention now to looking at the, the last part of Daniel chapter 9. Father, this is... Um, a significant passage. This is one of the sections in Scripture that, that might be referred to as sort of holy ground. Um, the, the prophecy here is is substantial, and it fits. It ties right into um, the reason that we celebrate Christmas, that we celebrate the coming of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we go through this passage, that you would help us to see the significance in this prophecy that was revealed to Daniel, the accuracy in which some of it has been fulfilled already. And Lord, we ask that you would encourage us uh, through this passage, uh, help, help me to speak clearly and to teach well, uh, that I would add clarity, not confusion. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction And talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with a plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come 
one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We ask that you would guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is one of those weeks in the bulletin. I've, 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 I've put an insert there that kind of gives an overview of this section, which is referred to as Daniel's 70 weeks, to, to help you kind of, you know, have some of the information that's presented today, to hope you have some clarity. For those that want to dig deeper, they can, it can kind of launch them into to some areas. Um, th- this section of Daniel has been described as the backbone of, of prophecy, um, we're going to take it in two parts. We're going to take today um, focusing on the, the part that has sort of, that we know has been fulfilled, namely the coming of Christ. And then in three weeks, we're taking a two-week break, and then we'll come back and we'll look at the last part of, of this, this, what we already read, dealing with the last week, which sort of ties into Revelation and some end times things that we'll, we'll look at. But today, I, I, I'm my prayer is that I cannot get lost in the weeds and that I can sort of present the big picture and make this passage clear to us. Um, I do love Alistair Begg. Um, he's, he's one of my favorites. We, we are not in the same theological camp on, on basically beginning and end stuff. <laughs> like we, we see differently. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And I read a quote by him by one guy um, and he, he quoted Alistair Begg as saying this on this message. And what Alistair Begg said was, dealing with this very specific passage was, I wish I had a Scottish accent or I'd give it for you the whole way. He says, in what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. And so I read that quote. I had to go dig up that message and listen to Alistair Begg's message on the 70 weeks just to see what sort of, you know, a, you know, quote unquote, opposing side would have to say on the matter. And I really did respect Alistair Begg's humility. And part of his struggle is the side that he's on doesn't acknowledge sort of the, the literal what, what's being said here. And the part of his struggle was that he actually ha- was leaning towards the camp that, that they would not be okay with. And because there's so much here that is yet to be fulfilled. And so I, I appreciate his, his levity in the, in the situation and his seriousness for the text and... And we're going to come at it um, with humility, but but also there's some certainty here. Um, And so let's begin. So verse 20, there's a couple easy verses here. So we read, and I'm going to quote some from the NIV because I do think the NIV clarifies some sections that add confusion unnecessarily. Uh, So we read, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. 
And so remember, if we go back to Daniel chapter 9, or we're in chapter 9, but verse 2, this chapter begins that Daniel had been studying Jeremiah. And as he studied Jeremiah, he realizes that Jeremiah had given a prophecy that Israel would be taken into captivity by Babylon. And, and not only did it give that, hey, you'll be taken into captivity, but Jeremiah says it's going to be for a specific amount of time. Israel will go into captivity for 70 years before they're allowed to go back. And so Daniel was one of these young men who was hauled away. Um, we know from the beginning of Daniel that it's speculated that there were like 70 to 100 young men that were choice men that were sort of Israel's finest royalty. And they were brought in at a young age to be indoctrinated, to become Babylonian. Um, and then the rest of Israel was essentially destroyed. And so Daniel, when he's studying Jeremiah, he's now an older man. He's in his 80s. And he realizes that he has been in captivity for 66 years. And he reads in Jeremiah that this would end at 70 years. And so there was some confusion about when did the ticker start ticking because the Babylonia, ba- Babylon's taking Israel into captivity happened in three waves. It began in 605 BC when Daniel was taken. There was another one in the middle. And then there was 586 BC, which the, the big destruction came where, where Jerusalem was destroyed the temple was decimated and basically Israel was done away with and everybody was taken into captivity. And so Daniel reads his Bible or what he has, parts of the writings, and he recognizes that he's approaching a time when God's about to start moving. And so it shakes him to the core and he begins to just repent, confess, not just his own sin, but certainly he acknowledges that he was a part of the problem with his nation Israel. He recognized that what God had done to them uh, was to discipline them for their, their disobedience. And Daniel is so moved in this prayer that he's not even concerned about his own like well-being. What he's concerned about is God's reputation amongst the nations, that, that Jerusalem, the temple, the world knew that this was the Hebrew God uh, residence and, and place to be, in, to be known to the world. And so Daniel's like, for your own glory, for your own sake, do something, God. And so as he's praying, all of a sudden the angel Gabriel is dispatched to Daniel. And to, during today's section, Gabriel is going to reveal some additional prophecy to Daniel. Um, the thing that strikes me or it caught my attention is notice what he says at the end of verse 21. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice. What evening sacrifice, Daniel? Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC. So we're talking, it depends on when you want to like do the calculation, but, but, but conservatively, like five or six decades earlier was the last time that any sacrifice was made in the temple. But Daniel's whole orientation, 
in all of their attempts to brainwash him and to strip him from his Judaism, his, his worldview is still based upon, I'm there praying, and this is the time of the sacrifice. The sacrifice hasn't happened in 60-some-odd years. But to Daniel, that was still the time of the evening sacrifice. It's just, this guy had everything straight, like everything stripped from him. And yet there he was, worshiping, praying, everything. Like, this is the time of the sacrifice. And Gabriel appears. And so verse 22, we're told that he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as, soon as, you, be, as, soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you. So Daniel begins to pray. Up in heaven somewhere, the father or the son looks to Gabriel, the angel, says, you're up, Gabriel. Time for you to go down to, to our guy Daniel and to give him some, some news. And it's almost as if, like the picture is that Daniel is still praying. He's still seeking God. He's still confessing. He's still doing all this stuff. And as he's communicating with God, Gabriel appears and interrupts him. Talk about being interrupted in prayer. And he says, as soon as you began to pray, verse 23, word went out in which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The first point I want to make about this is whatever Gabriel told Daniel, it wasn't to confuse Daniel. It was to give Daniel clarity. I think sometimes prophecy becomes confusing because we want to sort of muck up the waters or, or to try to push against what it's saying or but the, Gabriel comes and he says, I want to give you clarity on this vision that's about to unfold to you. I think it's encouraging on a, sort of a, a, a superficial level that God hears our prayers. Like D Daniel's praying, and we see that as he's praying, God's responding. Now, God doesn't always respond the way we would want him to respond. But here, the context is Jerusalem. The context is the Israeli people, the the context is the temple. Daniel is, is praying in extreme weariness, is what verse 21 says in the New American Standard, that, that, that he is just broken up over this. And then we come to verse 24. Verse 24 is sort of the, the summary verse of this whole passage. It's the big picture. As we get to verse 25, 26, 27, those are sort of... Um, like if this was an outline, they would be sub-points sort of fitting the big picture. So it, it will help us if we remember that verse 24 is the, the overarching picture. And what the angel says to Daniel, 77s is what the NIV says, not 70 weeks. 70 weeks is literally what the word is. So 77s are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place or you could translate that holy one scholars are it can go either way and so this is the overview there's uh, let's just deal with the weeks first because this is where it gets really 
Like, I'm with you. I'm an American. I'm 2,000 years removed. When I hear week, I think of seven days. Um, that's not how they used the word back then to the Hebrew mind. If we had written out, let's see, there's a bunch of illustrations, but they're all bad. I mean, it's, if, I, if it was, hey, that there were uh, 70 decades, we'd all understand. The Jews didn't think in periods of 10. They thought in periods of 7. Um, but a week for them could, could be days, it could be uh, weeks, could be months, it could be years. You, you had to sort of, the context had to, would dictate. Um, in this situation, Adkin, one scholar, says, virtually all scholars agree that the sevens represented years rather than weeks. The word seven functions like our English word dozen. It can refer to seven days, weeks, months, or years. So, so it's sort of a block of time. It's sevens. Um, there is an illustration. You don't have to go there. But back in Genesis 29, 27, the story is, remember when, why am I blanking on the guy's name, when Laban tricked Jacob, right? Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. So he says, hey, kid, okay. Work for me for seven years, then you can have my daughter. So the guy works seven years. I'm trying not, I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but somehow the guy's confused. <laughs> and he marries the wrong girl. He marries the sister. He wakes up in the morning, he's like, oh, rats. <laughs> like, how did that happen? And so he goes back to the father-in-law, and he says, you dirty rascal. You tricked me. And in verse, Genesis 29, verse 27, Laban says, here's the deal. You can, do, you can go back and you can work another seven years and you can marry the other daughter. But this is what Genesis 29, 27 says. It says, Laban tricked Jacob trying to win over Rachel. Rachel. Oh, I'm just reading what I wrote. Um, this is what was said. Uh, Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. And so this has often been referred to as the bridal week of earning the daughter for marriage. The bridal week is seven years. It's, it says it right there. So it's not, this isn't some radical idea that's saying, hey, this is seven, this, this week is a block of seven years, not seven days. We're not trying to stretch the meaning of this text. That the context of Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, is back in verse 2. Daniel starts this whole chapter, this whole section dealing with this revelation, saying that I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed. And so the whole context is years. And so when we come to this 70 weeks, the context is years. And so it's seven blocks of 70. This is where, like, do we ever bring their calculators today? I need to turn my page here because I got my notes. So it's 70 weeks of years, which is 490 years. It's all in your little handout in your bulletin. And so some observations from this first verse is that we're dealing with a specific block of time. Everybody will, like on both sides, everybody acknowledges that we're dealing with a, 
a block of time. Everybody agrees that the block of time is 490 years. I'd say everybody. There's a star on that because there's going to be somebody that will disagree. Um, We're told that during this 490 years that six things will occur. Rebellion will be finished. An end to sin will be made. Atonement for iniquity will take place. Three. Righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy sealed up. And the most holy one will be anointed. And so when I look at this passage, some of it's been fulfilled. Some of it's kind of been partially fulfilled or provided for the possibility of it actually happening. But there's some that just hasn't happened yet. But most scholars, or most, I would say now I'm moving like a notch below scholars to like pastors. There's been a number of pastors that are quoted as saying this, Any, anyone with even limited knowledge and understanding of the Bible and the Christian faith could read this and immediately respond, this is talking about Jesus and what he did for us, which I think is totally true. You, you look at this, and 500 years before the birth of Christ, you read that, and it's like, okay, well, I might not understand all of that or how it all happens but it just screams at you, this is the Messiah. This is what Jesus did. This is the cross. David Jeremiah tells a story. He says, uh, Leopold Kahn, a European rabbi, studied the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And on the basis of verse 25 and 26, which we'll get to, came to the conclusion that the Messiah had already come. Puzzled by this, he approached an older rabbi, and asked, where is the Messiah? The rabbi didn't know the answer, but told him he thought the Messiah was in New York City. I don't know why that is. <laughs> like that's, maybe there's good pizza there or something. Or like I, but for some reason, this old rabbi said, well, probably New York City. And so Khan sold almost everything he owned and bought passage to America, seeking the Messiah. He arrived in New York and began to wander up and down the streets looking for the Messiah. One night, he walked past the door of a gospel mission and heard people singing. He went in, sat down in the back of the room, and heard a preacher talk about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That night, Leopold Kahn received Jesus Christ as a Savior. Soon after, Kahn bought a stable, swept it out, set up some chairs, and began to hold his own gospel meetings. That was the first outreach of what was to become the American Board of Mission to the Jews. It all started because a rabbi read the ninth chapter of Daniel. And so in, in the big picture, the simple picture, especially as we're heading into Christmas, not like covering the extent of this, this is absolutely fascinating that within Daniel chapter 9, in this prophecy, the excitement of the coming Messiah was foretold. And this is what we celebrate. This is the whole reason that we celebrate Christmas was, is the advent of Christ, that Christ came into human history. Now going into verse 5, we're going to get into some more details. They're exciting. And they can be challenging, especially if you didn't bring a calculator. But there's notes for you to kind of go back to. And I want to explain this, hopefully, in the most simple terms. 
So in verse 25 we read, Know and understand this, from the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, and it will, rebuilt, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come and destroy the city and sanctuary, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. I'm not reading verse 27. We're not getting into verse 27 this week. But I have to kind of include it. So what happens in these three verses? In verse 24, he's decreed the, the, the 70 weeks, 490 years. Then in verses 25, 26, and 27, he breaks up the 70 weeks into three parts. Okay? So these aren't new weeks. These are the 70 weeks are being subdivided into three categories. So you have 70 weeks, then you have 62 weeks, and then verse 27, you have one week that remains. So the first thing he says about the first seven weeks which is 49 years, because 7 times 7 is 49. I still remember that from elementary math. By the time we get to 62 times 7, I'm going to go to the calculator or pen and paper. So in the first 49 years, the block of 7 weeks, he tells Daniel that a decree is to go out And from the time of that decree, within 49 years, the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Okay? And the question is, is where does that ticker start ticking? (laughs) There's a couple different options, but, but virtually all scholars say that the ticker begins ticking in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to read all of them. But Nehemiah the prophet is there. He's in the service of the king in captivity. He's looking a little downcast. He's looking a little sad. And the king's like, what's up with you, Nehemiah? You just, you just don't seem like yourself. And basically, Nehemiah's like, how can I be happy when my city, Jerusalem, is totally decimated? Like, it's just depressing. And so then we're told in those eight verses that that king basically wrote out a decree and said the city of Jerusalem shall be rebuilt. And there's a time stamp. It's something, something, Nissan. Not the car, but that's a month, which we know is March. And he says this decree will happen. So all scholars say, if you follow the timeline from there and you count up 49 years, and I don't want to muck up the waters, but our calendar is very different than the Jewish calendar. We, our calendar follows the sun. So there's 365 days in a year. The Jewish calendar follows the moon. So there's 360 days in their year. Every couple of years, I don't know how they worked it out, but they would just tack on a couple months just to get everything back in order. Then they would start over. And so we're in a Jewish mind here. And so when we're talking about their years, they're talking about a 360-day year. And if you do the math and you tally that out, you're like, hey, sure enough, within 49 years, Jerusalem was rebuilt, prophecy fulfilled, okay? We'll just leave it at that. 
Then moving from that, so let's just read the verse again. So no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, until the Messiah comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, and it will rebuilt it will rebuilt with streets. I'm, I got to go back to the New American Standard over here. <laughs> it is Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. But in times of trouble, then after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. I'm trying to like talk to myself. Where do I want to go? So 483 years or 62 weeks, which is after the 49 years, says that the Messiah will come. Which is absolutely crazy. Um, there are some on the other side that would say this is just doesn't make sense. It's, just, it's, it's foolishness that there are scholars out there that would say that the Messiah made his appearance to the day that was predicted. I agree with those guys. There are three different possibilities for the entry. Some would say, oh, it's the birth of Christ. Others would say it's the triumphal entry. And then others would say it's the cross. To me, like, we're, like, really splicing hairs. Like, if you're talking about a 33-year window over the course of history, or 500 years at least. But the triumphal entry seems to make the most sense. Let me explain why. If you think about all of Jesus' earthly ministry, every time they wanted to rush and make him king, they wanted to rush and put him up before the people, what did he say to them? My hour has not yet come. Like over and over again. And we tend to read that like, oh, he's just saying it's not time for him. Like, but quite frankly, it might literally mean that his hour had not come. The prophet, it was not time for him to fulfill the prophecy. But then... In John 12, 23, as he's heading to Jerusalem, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the same picture that you see in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there are some scholars, like, I, like I'm not going to do all the math and the conversion from the dates, but there are reputable scholars that say that Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem on March, I think it's 14th of AD 33. And they're like, if you do the retroactive math, and then you have problems going from our calendar to their calendar, and where does like AD start? Some say it starts in BC 30, 27, or no, no, AD, BC 3, sorry. See, it gets confusing. Or others say it starts at zero, so that that's kind of where they get the stuff. But, but it's like the guys with the big brains and all of this stuff and have got their calculators out. Like, I'm not going to go to the hour, but it's like they're... There are reputable guys that say that we can tell you the exact date that Jesus made his Palm Sunday march into Jerusalem. And there's, like, there's enough there that I can't say those guys are wacky. There's, there's, there's enough there that's like, oh, wow. And then if you'll turn with me, go over to Luke chapter 19. So we're going towards the back of the Bible. So Matthew, Mark, Luke 19. <clears throat> So in Luke 19, beginning in verse 35, this is the triumphal entry. 
Like everything is pointing to this. Jesus says, this is the time. This is the time for me to announce that I'm the Messiah. This is the time for me to make entry into Jerusalem as the Messiah. We read in verse 35, they brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting from Zechariah, Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teach, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Why would the stones cry out? Because it's been prophesied that the Messiah would come out, and if they shut their mouths, creation will start screaming out and praising me. Because this is the hour. I mean, it gives me goosebumps to think of it, but my, there's a side of me that's like, how can this possibly be? And then the story unfolds. We go to verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Two times does Jesus cry. The first was when Lazarus had died. He saw over agony. This time he sees the city of Jerusalem and he begins weeping, saying, verse 42, if you had known in this day, not just any day, this day, the day that was prophesied for the Messiah to come, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Something happened at the end of the 69th week. Or we had seven times seven, 49 years, Jerusalem was rebuilt. Then there was another 62 weeks added on that for the anointed one to show up. The anointed one shows up. And, and I, can't, I, I don't know what would have happened if Israel received their king, like what, what differences. But going back to Daniel, in the discussion of the 25, or this 25, I'm on verse 25, on the discussion of the 70 weeks, there's a natural pause in the text, which we'll look at in two weeks, between verse 26 and 27. So if we start in verse 26, what, what the prophecy that was given to Daniel, we're told, okay, after the 49 years, the temple will be rebuilt. Then another 62 uh, weeks will be added on. And we read in verse 26, after the 62 sevens or weeks, the anointed one will be put to death. So then there's prophecy about his execution. It happens after. So we've gone from 69 to 70 somewhere. But I'll save that for two weeks where we get really confused. But for now, as Sir Isaac Newton, the great scientist who discovered gravity. So how hard is it to discover gravity? You know? <laughs> he, he's a mathematician that's known for gravity. He also was a, was, a, was a theologian. I'm not always saying that he's a great theologian, but he wrote commentaries. His statement on Daniel chapter 9, these verses, he says we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone. Because five centuries before Christ was born, his coming was foretold. And that's what's happening here. To the day. 
the Messiah would show up, like everything unfolded. And we're going to pause here because it's Christmas. We sing Christmas carols. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going, to, we're going to go through like 10 days. Not by who's counting? You know, nine days, I think. We sing Christmas carols and enjoy family and like all of this like stuff revolving, revolving around baby Jesus. We're not so much celebrating that Jesus was born. We're, we're celebrating that his incarnation because Jesus always existed. And I would, I would guard us from making baby Jesus to be like any one of the other fairy tales that we surround with holidays. This isn't just some fairy tale story. This is like thousands of years of prophecy starting back in Genesis chapter 3 throughout the whole of the Old Testament pointing to the coming Messiah. Now we're still waiting and there are some things that they didn't see. It reminds me of a few years ago. Not a few years ago. It's been a lot of years. We're talking like 1999, I think, is the year. I was, um, I was in a platoon and we were getting ready to go to the Middle East. In fact, we were, we were actually trying to get our endorsement uh, to be kind of war, war ready. And so you have to go through an FTX, a final training exercise, before they'd kind of put the stamp of approval that your platoon could be used for combat. And so we had this exercise, and we were supposed to go up out at San Clemente Island. We were supposed to, to, to go up and to do so. I don't even remember what we were supposed to do, but it was supposed to take a few days. And our point of entry was supposed to be this nice little ravine that we could kind of make our way up, and so we pull in in the middle of the night. And... And as we pull up, we see some, like, fishermen had, like, hunkered their boats down in the harbor. And it's like, ah, stupid fishermen, like, like, why are they fishing here? Don't they know, like, what the nation is depending on right now? Like, can't, like, we can't. And we're being, we're being graded. And so it's like, well, we can't just, like, we can't just tell them to go away because that would be compromising the situation. So I guys like, hey, well, over here, like, there's another little ravine. We can just hike up that one. Did you get do any recall? Nah, we can do it. I was a radio guy, so I carried all this extra weight. I'm like, oh, we can do it, huh? <laughs> and so we swam in. And it was hor I mean, it was horrible. I mean, there's cactus everywhere. Finally, we were supposed to be like hunkered down by daylight. And we'd kind of given up being tactical at this point because it's like we would go 10 yards, there'd be like a 20-foot cliff. We would have to go up that cliff. And every cliff looked like it was the last one. And then you got onto it and it's like another... I don't know how many of these we did over the course of the night or the day at this point. Our commanding officer who was grading us, he eventually just left us because he's like, there's going to be problems and we need to get help here. He finally got back as our commanding officer's like stuck on this cliff. He couldn't go up anymore and he couldn't go down. Well, he could go down, but he didn't want to go down the way the option was presented. And so what appeared to be the last one, I think is what a lot of prophecy looks like. It's like there's a mountain peak there. And then as you get closer, it's like, ah, there's actually another mountain peak a little distance away. And so all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, they saw the promised Messiah. They couldn't see this gap between the two appearings of Christ. 
And so within Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, we see the first coming, but also embedded in there, there's a second coming, which they couldn't see at the time. So when they see Jesus coming into Jerusalem and they're waving their palm branches, that's the equivalent of the American flag prepared for their king. They didn't see the suffering of Isaiah 53. And so we look back and we say, man, our Lord, the details that he revealed. And now where we are, we can look forward for the hope of the second coming. Charles Spurgeon says this. The Lord God appeared at a set time for the coming of his son into the world. Nothing was left to chance. Infinite wisdom dictated the hour at which the Messiah should be born and the moment at which he should be cut off. His advent and his work are the highest point of the purpose of God, the hinge of history, the center of providence, the crowning of the edifice of grace, and therefore peculiar care should be watched over every detail. And so we celebrate Jesus' birth because of its significance. This isn't just some baby. This is the creator of the universe. The one who spoke creation into existence came down that he might live the perfect life for us, that he would go to the cross and make the ultimate sacrifice that we could never do. And because of what he did, we have life. We can rejoice. We can celebrate. We can enjoy family. We can... Like, enjoy the holidays, but don't lose sight of who Jesus is. And Father, we do thank you for the details found within your holy word concerning the Messiah. The details concerning the arrival of the Messiah, it's overwhelming. It's, it's, it's hard to fathom. It's, it's hard to believe. But here it is. It wasn't happen chance, it wasn't random that Jesus would enter into human history. He came with a purpose, with a mission. And so, Lord, we thank you that Christ came that we might have life. We thank you that Jesus came and that he would pay it all for us. And so, Father, we ask that as we celebrate Christmas this season, as we Enjoy all of the festivities, all of the fun, all of the singing, all of the treats, all of the gifts. Lord, may we keep our eyes upon Christ and recognize the significance of the ultimate gift that he gave us. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.